Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. Today we'll be focusing on what's currently driving the UK forestry market, why more landowners want to plant more trees, and the government's key targets around tree planting and net zero. We'll also look at the market for woodland as an investment. So we have Head of Rural Research Editor Andrew Shirley, alongside guests Forrester Andrew Bronwyn and Cairngorm's National Parks Ecology Advisor, David Hetherington. So Andrew, can you set the scene for us? What's currently driving the UK forestry market and why do more landowners currently want to plant more trees? Thanks, Anna. Well, I think it's a really exciting time for woodland and forestry. We've obviously had Brexit, so we've left the EU, which means we're leaving the common agricultural policy, which was a way that farmers were supported in the past. So they're not going to be receiving what we call the basic payment scheme. Instead, they're going to be rewarded more for environmental endeavours and things like that. So trees could play a really exciting role in terms of climate change, improving the environment, that kind of thing. We recently did a survey of our clients and it turned out that almost 50% of them said they plan to plant more trees over the next few years. And the government also has quite ambitious targets for more tree planting across the UK. For example, the government wants by 2025 to be planting 30,000 hectares more trees every year. So that's quite a lot of trees that the government wants to plant. So there's lots of exciting opportunities for landowners to tap in to this ambition and this climate change direction. Thanks, Andrew. And Andrew Bronwyn, I mean, clearly there's a lot of drivers here. Do you think that landowners view forestry mainly as a safe haven, good for tax planning, or do you reckon it's more about the environment and carbon credits? Traditionally, the market has been invested in through knowledgeable private individuals with an understanding of the sector, often driven by the tax incentives. There have been one or two specialist investment funds who have concentrated on the, particularly on the commercial upland spruce plantations, and then there's been the smaller scale amenity market. We've seen a rise in forestry values from about £6,000 per hectare in 2011 to about £13,000 per hectare in 2019, giving annualised returns of about 16%. And that's made it a very attractive and worthwhile investment. But there are now new buyers entering the market who like that performance of the asset class in recent years, which has been driven by increases in land and timber prices. But these new buyers are also attracted by the benefits of natural capital and carbon sequestration. For example, there's a new forest carbon sequestration fund, which was recently launched, which raised 30 million for the purchase of planting and agricultural land. So there is increasing interest in this asset class. Thanks, Andrew. So quite a range of drivers there. David, and what's your perspective from Scotland, from Cairngorms National Park? I mean, what have you seen in terms of how attitudes might have changed towards forestry and, and what sort of patterns are you seeing in terms of how people are embracing that? Yeah, well, the, the Cairngorms National Park is the UK's largest. It forms about 6% of Scotland's land surface. So it's, it's quite a useful microcosm, I think, of Scotland as a whole. And of course, most of the national park is privately owned. And we see a real diversity of cultural values, of land management objectives within that sector. Some, I think, are undoubtedly motivated by a sort of moral duty to try and address the climate change and biodiversity crises. And of course, we have some very wealthy, eco-minded landowners in the park who perhaps don't require the financial incentives that others might. And of course, equally, we have landowners who might want to do the right thing, but will need financial help to do that. And I think partly this is being driven as well by a growing awareness of rewilding. 
people being inspired by rewilding. And I think Isabella Tree's book, Wilding, has helped quite a lot in that regard. And whilst that's set in southern England, it has ramifications for Scotland, particularly as many of the people who own land in Scotland are actually resident in the south of England. So, yeah, we do see people being interested in, in looking after the environment. But clearly, many landowners are interested by the financial incentives on board, whether that's the grant schemes, whether it's the timber return or whether it's the carbon funding that is becoming increasingly available. And Angie Bronwyn, do you see tree planting is actually leading to a tangible reduction in carbon? I mean, there's a lot of talk about it, clearly, but is it having tangible benefits yet? Not yet, I would say, but there's three main ways that trees can help with the carbon emissions. Trees sequester carbon, taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. If this government target is met, that will make a substantial difference. And the amount of sequestration will depend on the growth rates with faster growing trees or more fertile soils sequestering the most carbon. But in addition to that, you've got two other ways that can help the carbon issue, and that's embedding carbon in wood products. So the sequestered carbon is locked up in the tree. And once felled, that carbon can also be locked up in the life of the product that it goes into. So it's for this reason that it's preferable to grow quality timber mostly softwoods, which could be used in construction, where the carbon's locked up for the life of the building. And then also on top of that, you've got the substitution effect. So wood is a light, strong material, which can often substitute for more carbon-heavy products, such as steel and concrete. And that's why now we're beginning to see the emergence of taller buildings traditionally built out of steel and concrete, now constructed out of wood. So it's important that we see the life cycle of the tree and its products to assess the full advantages tree planting could bring to our carbon emissions. And too often, the focus is simply on sequestration. You mentioned that we might see more timber appearing in buildings. I mean, do you think that it's realistic that UK forestry could contribute to, say, the construction of commercial office buildings? Or do you think most of it will continue to be imported from overseas? I think the important thing to remember is that we can grow quality of timber that we require for construction. Too long it was thought that UK timber wasn't of sufficient quality. It is. It's perfectly adequate. We can grow timber to uh, what they call a C16, stress-graded timber, which is used in construction. And that in combination with the new techniques with something called CLT, which is cross-laminated timber, which can make the timber stronger for building larger buildings, really. So timber framing is becoming much more popular. I mean, already there's 80% of the new builds in Scotland are timber frame, 30% in Wales, 22% in England. That's all got potential to increase. And it's been calculated that you know modular timber frames show a 35% saving in embodied carbon compared to traditional house construction methods. So if we are serious about going green, Timber could make a significant contribution to that. And if you think that about 40% of the UK carbon dioxide emissions derive from building and construction, the largest contributor being concrete, again, you can see that if you're using more sustainable building materials like timber, that can have a very useful contribution to our national carbon account. And how about you, David? My understanding is the UK still imports about 82% of its timber requirements. So, I mean, do you think that the UK could become more self-sufficient? And what's your perspective from Scotland? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely increasing the amount of timber that we're growing in Scotland. So by extension, yeah, the, the proportion that's homegrown, sure, there's loads of potential to increase that. And absolutely, it, it's heartening to hear those figures for the amount of timber that's used in construction here in Scotland. I think that is an excellent way of locking up carbon. Tree planting isn't always going to be good for, for lowering carbon emissions. If you're going to chop the tree down and then burn it for biomass, that's obviously not going to be perfect from a carbon point of view. Equally, if you're using it for lower grade products such as pallets, they've got a pretty limited shelf life before they start to degenerate and in some cases are very often burnt as well. So yeah, trees don't always help carbon wise and of course it is important to have the right tree in the right place planted in the right way. If we're planting trees in quite an invasive way in terms of the ground prep on carbon rich soils that can actually do more harm than good. So provided this is done sensitively, and we're putting the trees in the right place, especially on mineral soils, then, yeah, I think it's going to be very beneficial. And I'm excited to see what the future is going to hold for that. And just on a more macro level, David, in terms of how devolved governments are investing in forestry at different levels, I mean, would you say that Scotland is doing better at this? Yeah, I think the Scottish government have been very clear in their messaging. They've made it very clear that they want to see an increase in woodland creation in Scotland, both in terms of an important economic activity in rural areas, but also, of course, as a way of helping deliver carbon sequestration as part of Scottish government's ambitious climate change targets. Scotland's looking to be greenhouse gas net zero by 2045. So that's five years earlier than the rest of the UK as a whole. And of course, they've made that a budget available for that. The budget for woodland creation in Scotland has increased a great deal over the last 10, 15 years. It's practically trebled. Whilst at the same time, England's budget has declined. The Scottish budget is now much larger, despite Scotland, of course, being that bit smaller a country. The other thing I think that has happened is that the process of applying for grant schemes has been made quicker and slicker. There were concerns within the forestry sector that the process was overly bureaucratic and too slow. The Scottish government launched a, a kind of review of that. They got the former chief planner of Scotland to come in and do an independent review. He made recommendations. They've been adopted. So we now, like I say, have a quicker, slicker process that helps quite a bit. And I, I should say within the National Park here in the Cairngorms, what we've done is in conjunction with Scottish forestry, we've actually decided where we want to see wooden creation happening most. And we've incentivized it in those target areas by adding another 12.5% to the woodland creation grant rates. And then we further made the whole process a bit easier by offering a woodland challenge fund that helps landowners and farmers meet some of the upfront preparatory costs of putting together a forestry grant scheme, all to try and make this a much more attractive prospect doing woodland creation. And the other Andrews on the podcast, I mean, do you agree there with David, either Andrew Bronwyn or Andrew Shirley? I mean, do you think it's fair that... Scotland is a leader in investment in forestry. Oh, yeah. Scotland has been very impressive how it's tackled tree planting and its attitude towards forestry. And I think the difference has been that it's treated it as not only a major contribution to its carbon account, but also to the economy. It recognises that it makes a significant contribution to the economy. Uh, In Wales, there is a lot of potential here. We've got good growing conditions. We've potentially got land available. But the government has not seen it in such a positive light. It's got a target of only 2,000 hectares a year to plant, but last year it only planted 80. So there's a lot of catch-up to do there. It is beginning to put more money into it. We've also got the issue that David referred to about the regulation, and it is quite hard to get a lot of the schemes through the system because there's always reasons to say no. 
and I think that's a cultural and attitudinal change that will come about hopefully in due course. England, different issues. I mean, they planted 2,300 hectares last year. So again, lots of scope there if they're going to meet their possible 10,000 hectares a year under the new targets. And I think there it's probably more an issue about land availability. There's going to be areas particularly around the north of England, Northumberland, Cumbria, where the economics may work better. But for much of the better farming land areas, I think that's always going to be a challenge find land suitable for planting where the sums add up. Thank you, that's a good overview. Andrew, Shirley, anything just to add to that at all? Yes, thanks, Anna. Andrew's right. I mean, we have been a bit behind the curve in England, but I interviewed Zach Goldsmith, the Minister for Forests, um, in the Rural Report recently, and they have just launched the England Tree Strategy, which is a consultation that people have been able to take part in. So hopefully in England we are taking it more seriously. And as I mentioned before, we've got these very ambitious targets to achieve but it's quite interesting what Andrew said about the sort of land availability in England for planting trees. I think a lot of landowners are quite reluctant to plant trees on arable land because they're worried about profits but as we see the basic payment scheme the government support payments decrease and perhaps conventional crops um, become perhaps less profitable people might start looking at trees again but it was also interesting earlier David mentioned this book by Isabella Tree called Wilding and I interviewed Isabella a while back for the Royal Report. And in it, she talks about this thing called baseline syndrome. So people get used to the environment, the habitats that they remember from their childhood. And people in England will particularly think about fields with crops growing and that kind of thing. And they think that's how it's always been. But of course, it hasn't always been like that. There's been lots more trees in the past. So there's no reason why we can't plant more trees and it won't actually be similar to what we've had in previous centuries. And I'm actually in Sweden now in a very heavily wooded area. And people think, oh, this is lovely, lots of trees. But actually, if you cycle through those forests, you can see lots of little farmsteads. And it didn't actually used to be forests around here. It used to be dairy farms and pasture farms, but then these became unprofitable and people planted trees instead. So things do change. So as I said before, in the UK, conventional crops become less profitable. Perhaps we might be seeing more of a move towards forestry and woodland that can become profitable if people manage it correctly. Thank you, Andrew. Interesting to see if the UK can become a bit more like Sweden in that sense. And Andrew Bronwyn, just looking to the future and indeed the present, I just wondered what your views are on potential fallout from COVID-19. And clearly we've got Brexit as well coming up. How do these massive macro issues impact UK forestry at the moment and going forward? Well, it's a little bit hard to say with relation to COVID. I think that could be a bit of a plus and a minus. So investors may be looking for long-term tangible investments if we're going to go into recession and the stock market looks less attractive. But against that, there might be individuals and businesses that have suffered significant financial impact as a result of the pandemic, making funds less available. And then in terms of product demand, this could also be adversely affected in the short to medium term if, if there is a recession and construction slows up. But Prime Minister said recently that the intention is to build, 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 to quote him. So hopefully the government will pump prime those activities which will indirectly support the forest industry. With regard to Brexit, probably potentially better news. We use the vast majority of our domestic timber production, so we never have to worry about export tariffs like a lot of the agricultural products. And the more we can produce ourselves, the less we've got to worry about increasing global demand, import tariffs, and so on. 
And as the agricultural subsidies decline, as inevitably they will, as we now are out of the European Union with payments in favour of public goods, it should make the more marginal farmland look attractive for woodland creation. So as ever with these things, it's a mixed picture and quite hard to predict. But I think the medium to long term scenario is very positive. So we're now going to talk about the transactional side of things and discuss the market for woodland as an investment. I'm going to be speaking with Rand Morgan, who's a consultant to Knight Frank's private office team and a specialist in rural property and forestry investment. Welcome, Rand, to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. And how would you say COVID has impacted values and are woodland values still increasing despite that? Obviously, the, the economy is going through a turbulent time and investors will look to much safer blue chip products to maintain or their capital. Uh, as far as forestry is concerned, obviously it's a tangible asset with a volatile pound. Obviously the domestic market for timber has increased. Safe investment class, it's not going anywhere and it's asset backed as well as a huge domestic need with a weak pound has made it more attractive, yes. Actually, we spoke about timber imports for the UK earlier on in the podcast. Do you envisage a time where the UK could become more self-sufficient on that front? I think very unlikely in that we're about to embark on a huge house building programme. As I've mentioned, we already import 83% of our timber needs. So that is a huge void to fill. Mm. And actually, despite the government talking up big targets to plant uh, woodland and forestry there just simply isn't in my view the land available to do that and you've got to take this huge cultural shift from agriculture to tree planting and that that just doesn't happen in five minutes that's a generational two generational shift that you need to overcome so no I don't think we'll ever be self-sufficient in timber and, and with Brexit coming up I mean do you see any further sort of shifts there do you think that farmers might be more motivated to plant trees if they're not getting as many subsidies for their farmland potentially yeah well farmers currently are producing commodities they're producing essentially meat and grain on incredibly low margins which have been created by this subsidy situation they will continue after the subsidies are reduced to produce either commodities in the form of nutrients, which us humans eat and consume, uh, or, or other livestock eat and consume, or they will be producing fibre. And I guess it's just it depends on how they structure their businesses. But I would have thought that on the majority of UK land, their businesses will work better in producing nutrients and rather than fibre, i.e. timber. So, Rand, I understand that woodland values are increasing. Why is that? And what would you say the best way is for our clients to invest? Well, woodland values are increasing really because there is a much more appetite for investors to invest in forestry, which is uh, it's an asset-backed investment, so it's tangible, it's solid, it's safe, and it also is a green investment. It's doing an enormous amount of good for our planet and it sucks in carbon and it produces sustainable timber, which will be required in large amounts due to Boris's building projects, which are about to start. In addition to that, there is a new market, which is the carbon credit market. It's still very much finding its feet and I think it'll take two or three years to do that. But 
it's something that the market is finding very interesting and it's attracting a lot of attention. So that, and also on the back of, I guess, the way retail works, and this is largely due to COVID, is that we now do most of our shopping online, which has kicked off a new logistics industry. And logistics is built on pallets made out of timber, and it's based on packaging, cardboard also made out of timber. So there are two new markets that have sprung up out of this, and also the reduction of single-use plastic. So, you know, in the supermarkets, you won't be filling up plastic bags or filling up plastic bags with tomatoes. You'll be filling up your paper bags with your tomatoes. So, obviously, there are new requirements for timber springing up all the time. How do clients invest and take advantage of the moment, certainly, for the foreseeable future appreciating asset class? Well, they either wish to invest to such an extent they are happy to buy a forest that warrants a forest manager that will take care of the management and produce a return and look after the asset. Or they buy a smaller sales forest, which is more affordable, but the management element of that would eat significantly into the returns unless they're happy to manage it themselves. Or they invest in a forest fund and take advantage of the economies of scales that that provides. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information.